You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 65 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page, at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, Mark Herleman, and with me like the Jedi who inevitably flocked to Revan, the EU guru himself, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Hello, hello everyone. Good day, sir. How you been? I am doing well. Uh, it has been an interesting week or so here. My fiance, uh, who lives with me, we're getting married in June, uh, has been struck by mono, the infectious kind of mono. So we're sort of, it's like a quasi-quarantine, you know, very, very careful kind of going around making sure that she doesn't wind up with me sick uh, so that I'm not sick for the last chunk of the school year and all. So uh, that's been interesting. And I've been getting uh, geared up and psyched up and playing the beta version of that new MMO that's coming out in April called Defiance, the one that ties into the uh, Sci-Fi Channel or Siffy Channel uh, TV show and whatnot, getting pretty excited for that. If you're a listener out there and you plan on playing Defiance on PS3, let us know because uh, I'm going to be looking for other people uh, from the community to play with alongside. Um, But yeah, it's been an interesting, uh, kind of an odd week or so. I just cannot wait for spring break to start, uh, which will officially start the day this episode is released online. Thank goodness. Interesting scene here. I thought this defiance was uh, in face of the cold itself. Speaking of MMOs. at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we dive into the first part of the Old Republic, Revan. Consider this your spoiler warning, boys, girls, sentients of all ages, because here we go. That's right, and we want to get some context sort of taken care of here right off the bat so that you understand where this fits into the grand scheme of things, uh, both in terms simply of uh, chronology, but also in terms of context within the Old Republic. Um, from the standpoint of chronology, the KOTOR Knights of the Old Republic comic series, the original comic series, ran from 3,964 to 3,963 years before the Battle of Yavin, or BBY, okay? KOTOR War, which really wasn't necessary, pops in the next year, 3,962 BBY. The first Knights of the Old Republic video game, then, of course, KOTOR 1, we sometimes call it, takes place in 3,956 BBY, six years later. That is the one that introduced Revan in the first place. And then two years after that, 3,954 BBY is the first part of Revan, leading up to about chapter 16. Then after that, three years later, we get KOTOR 2, The Sith Lords, the video game, at 3,951 BBY. Revan Part 2 follows immediately after that in the same year. And then 50 years later, 
we get the epilogue of Revan in 3901 BBY. For broader context, then, we then jump to the Treaty of Coruscant in 3653 BBY and the Old Republic MMO game in 3640 BBY. So there is a 300-year gap, even though this is referred to as the Old Republic Revan. And the reason for that is that this novel is meant not only to give us some, some answers to what exactly it was that happened to Revan prior to the events of KOTOR 1 and between KOTOR 1 and KOTOR 2, and what happens to the exile in Revan after KOTOR 2, it also has to serve to lead us into the Old Republic video game 300 years later. The Old Republic video game is divided into a lot of different ways to get the story. There are eight class storylines, four from each side. Um, you've got Sith Warrior, Sith Inquisitor, Imperial Agent, and Bounty Hunter for the Imperial side. On the Republic side, you've got Republic Trooper, Smuggler, Jedi Knight, and Jedi Consular. But each class also has some companions, and many of those companions have their own storylines that you go on with them to give some more background, one of which is the Jedi Knight companion, Lord Scourge, the Emperor's Wrath as of the end of Revan and as of the beginning of the story, though he won't retain the title through the end of the game. Your Sith Warrior character in that class storyline eventually becomes the new Emperor's Wrath, taking his place. So they're setting up that. Then you also have four so-called operations right now that can be played by either side, uh, mainly about the Dreadmasters, not a big deal for this context here. And there are 17 current so-called flashpoints, where characters can come together from the different classes, and sometimes it's a mission that can only be carried out by one side or the other, and sometimes it's one that either side can carry out, though the introduction and, and ending conversations, of course, are different depending on who you're getting your orders from. In those flashbacks, you then have four that center specifically on the Revan character and how he is freed from the imprisonment he ends up in at the end of the Revan novel. You start with the Republic in a mission called Taral 5, where the Republic team is called upon by Jedi Master Oteg. They do some, uh, some meditating, have a vision of Mitra Surik, who point them to the Maelstrom prison where Revan is being held. And then there's the Maelstrom prison flashpoint where you actually go, you find him, you free him, you talk to him, and he then goes to provide information to the Jedi Council and says he will then go to Foundry, which is basically like another Star Forge, one of essentially three of them, so that he can then uh, work against the Sith Emperor more actively. Uh, then it switches over to the Imperial side. You find that they are trying to get to Foundry to stop him, and you start with Boarding Party, which uh, sets up the events leading into Foundry, uh, and then the Foundry mission itself. The Foundry is the name of that flashpoint, during which the Imperials not only defeat and kill Revan, but they manage to also face and defeat HK-47, which of course is Revan's droid back in KOTOR 1, shows up again in KOTOR 2. He does show up in the Old Republic, now rebuilt and being used by Revan. Once he's defeated there, HK-47, that is, he winds up taking part in a, a segment of stories later for the Imperial side uh, that culminate in a flashpoint called the False Emperor, where Darth Malgus is trying to take over the Empire, and basically he's a third faction briefly in the storyline. It's something referenced back in Annihilation. And during that, a group called the Schism Collective that works with Malgus have rebuilt HK-47 from the Foundry, and he winds up being another enemy character there, only to eventually be defeated by the characters. What's funny about that, though, is he also shows up 
in the Galaxy games at some point as well. And his final fate is in that, in that era. And I found that was pretty intriguing. Right. So we're basically dealing with something where the fates of these characters were already known. Maybe not to... You know, everyone out there, not everyone is playing the Old Republic, but we got to keep that in mind. If we're going to give a fair assessment of the Revan novel as we go along, we have to remember that it wasn't just filling in gaps. There were things it was leading up to that were already set in stone thanks to the Old Republic game. That's why it's an Old Republic novel. We cannot simply say, well, we don't like where this, you know, left us off if yeah. it's having to leave us off in a place to set up something else. That'd be like saying, you know, that, uh, that I don't like the way The Empire Strikes Back ended, even though we already know where Return of the Jedi is, is picking up. Although, at least in that case, there was some time for Lucas to perhaps change the way that he wanted Return of the Jedi to come out. You just, you don't have that option here. Well, I, I knew from some of the flashpoints that I'd seen on YouTube that the exile was with him as a Force ghost. Uh, and with him, I mean Revan. Um, you know, and, and through searching on Wikipedia, I found out about HK's fate being in the in the Galaxy game. Uh, but you know, I'd seen the Imperial side. Is, is there another side where Revan lives? I mean, was was he always destined to die in those scenes? I, that's that's what I don't know. I mean, you've been re, you've been watching all these, catching up on it all. So I mean, was there one where he came through alive? There does not appear to be. Basically, the flashpoints are, from a story standpoint, they build on each other. And the last time we see him, at least so far is in that flashpoint of the Foundry. And at that point, you are an Imperial character, and the winning condition is to take him down. There aren't any Republic stories or Republic versions of that. Um, it, it basically assumes that he dies. Now, maybe he did enough damage to the Empire at that point that it helps our characters later, but um, from what I'm seeing, there isn't anything that gives us a positive fate for Revan. He goes down like a hero. In fact, right before he fights them in his final confrontation on Foundry, he puts his mask back on. The cool one with the, you know, the Mandalorian yeah. mask, I guess, that he got uh, on Cathar back uh, during the, the flashbacks in the Knights of the Old Republic comic series that we saw in the game as well. He puts the mask back on to do the battle. But yeah, he is left dead and defeated um, at the end of it so that your character as an Imperial can then progress. Wow. Okay. Well, well, I mean, so, so yeah, there is that to keep in mind and that I think, you know, and we will definitely explore this more in our next episode when we d discuss part two, there is a definite reaction to this book. I mean, we were going to try to get an extra person on this episode for you beyonders out there. So, you know, you'd have another point of view on it and it was really hard to get any of our regular podcasting buddies out there, boys and girls to have read this book or or it had been so long and they just had other projects they couldn't come on but most of them hadn't given it a shot yet even i was late to this game uh you know i i just got the paperback and just finished reading it uh you know a couple of weeks before we started this but i really 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 enjoyed the first part of this book a lot uh in fact i enjoyed the whole book but I also like, like as Nathan described here, I knew the fate of what was going to happen to Revan. So for me, it was figuring out the hows. Um, on We Talk Clones, when the Lawless episode came on, we were talking about, you know, what happened to Mandalore's mask. Well, you know, to sum up part one, it's basically Revan and Kandoris 
or Candorous. I'm going to screw up a lot of these names because I say them like three or four different ways because I'm like, well, which is the right way? And I never really figured that out and my brain never locked in. So sorry ahead of time. But anyway, the two of them, they're going on a quest for Mandalore's mask. That's the whole purpose of the first half of them. But Lord Scourge, or Scourge as, as Nathan calls him, gets uh, involved in the schemes that are after the Emperor. And, and for me, I thought this also, how it ties into the Old Republic, was more the Emperor's story. Because I have been very curious about him ever since we had those free comics, the tour comics and stuff like that, that we later got in the trade paperbacks that dealt with what was going on with him. Uh, and, and the whole, you know, having children and he's being thousands years old and how that all played out. So that was curious. Although it does, when I was reading it, it raised a question about the Sith that I never thought to ask before which is how old is a natural Sith get? Because I'm under the impression here that Sith could be like a Yoda species to a regard where they could live for quite a while because some of these Sith are already a couple hundred years old, it seems. We definitely get some interesting uh, twists to the whole issue of, of longevity for any of these characters. But at the same time, we also at least get somewhat of an explanation for it. We find out about the ritual in this book that allows the Dark Emperor to become as powerful as he is and then, of course, we see by the end of the book, uh, Scourge going through a similar process when he becomes the Emperor's Wrath. So at least now we have a sense that, okay, it's not just that all Sith can live as long as they want. The Emperor essentially is able to bestow this and to do it himself. Of course, in this case, we're not referring to Palpatine as the Emperor. We're referring back to uh, Tenebrae, uh, the illegitimate child of Lord Dramath, who is later dubbed Lord Vichiet. V-I-T-I-A-T-E, who we now, of course, know in the game, essentially as the Dark Emperor. The one bad Sith. I mean, you know, I, I love the the mirroredness of the Emperors here, you know, I mean, because you have to actually put that out there. Or people will get confused because a lot of what this Emperor is doing you see to a degree of what Palpatine's doing. And I like that. I, I think, you know, for Palpatine, who better to emulate but the one Sith Emperor that pulled it off for a really long time. I mean, you know, there was a lot of that aspect. The, the one thing I like about the way part one jumps in, though, it has like a prelude where we see Revan's been having these nightmares or memory flashbacks of of, of a planet and, you know, storm clouds. Basically, it's, he's having dreams of Dromod Koss. Um and he's very troubled by these dreams, you know. We we also, I think it's like on page 64, we see that Revan had approached the council at one point with an offer to share his new understanding of the Force. And what that was was that he had come to understand that the Force was alive. And it was interesting that, that the council, they could not accept that, that the Force had evolved beyond their, their, uh, their stayed teachings. And I thought that that was a very interesting you know, conflict for him. I mean, their immediate reaction was to ban him, you know, and it talked about how cooler heads had prevailed and that there was a deal that had been struck that they would ignore him and Bastila's marriage as long as he kept his Jedi heresies quiet. And, you know, from an EU standpoint, you know, we've always had that back and forth of, you know, what's the will of the force? A will kind of, kind of implies that it's alive. Is it alive? Isn't it alive? And, you know, the EU kind of takes some liberties there and kind of always fuels that mystery of whether it is or isn't and having Revan's point of view being that it is and going so you know counterculture to the council at that time I, I like that and that, that's part of what I love so much about this first part is the the histories and stuff that we get from these characters points of view there's a lot of that going on and this this to me it's like it's a standalone book but it does so much for this era and it's interesting that with his different points of view that you know the council you know, isn't willing to allow him to teach. You know, he's, he wants to, you know, be someone who can share this different perspective. 
they think it's heretical, essentially. Uh, we get to see as the book opens up a situation where essentially he is, he's basically restless. He's starting to have his visions or these dreams of the stormy world that we will later figure out is Nathema or Ameridras, I believe is how you say the name before uh, Vichit changes its name. And he's, he gets the sense that he needs to seek out the truth behind why it was that, you know, he turned to the dark side, why Malik turned to the dark side, why they came back and waged war against the Republic in the Jedi Civil War and whatnot, or sometimes called the Jedi Crusade. Just what was it about uh, what he went through then that changed everything for him? And I like the fact that they're making him someone who is somewhat troubled. It's not just that he randomly accidentally finds something about his past. We explore the past by him actually actively seeking it out. Although, I will say that one thing that excited me also troubles me. Um, at the beginning of the book, we find that he is married to Bastille Shan, which is cool because we know that eventually that line will continue on and on and on and on and on until we get uh, Satil, who, of course, is the Grandmaster of the Jedi Order in the Old Republic MMO and that era of storytelling. Um, we find out that she is pregnant with his child, uh, Vanner, who will eventually wind up uh, being seen in the epilogue and all. But everything about the way they handle Bastilla in this book grates upon the fabric of my soul. Because they turn her from someone who is a powerful female lead character in KOTOR 1 into this weak-willed, whiny, um, I don't want to say doting, doting's not the right word, a uh, pining type of character who just, she seems like a lot of her spine has been ripped away. They do to Bastilla in this book mm. what was done to Padme in Episode 3. She goes from strong in 1, strong in 2, what the hell happened to her in 3, and that's the same thing that happens here with Bastilla. Strong in KOTOR 1, in the intervening two years, she starts to be a crappy character who seems like she only defines herself in relation to Revan, and then by the time we see her in the second part of the book, it's even worse. Um... It seems as though she is being undermined as a character here. She only exists in relation to Revan, whereas Candorus gets to be his own character. Of all the characters that are developed in this that came originally from KOTOR 1, it's Bastilla who gets the short end of the stick, and I would have expected her to be one of the stronger characters in the book. Well, I mean, at one point you kind of get that sense. When when Candorus and Revan are, are setting up the team... And they plan on taking Bastila at first, and then he comes home and finds out that she's pregnant. But, I, I mean, I see where you're going with that, and I understand where you're coming from, but I, I didn't take it that way. I kind of saw it as, you know, at the end of KOTOR, the first game, she fell to the dark side, and it was Revan that pulled her back through their connection. And uh, to me, it's like kind of what we see with Ahsoka in Season 5. Everything about her foundation of the Jedi has been shaken, and now she latches on to Revan, and, and yeah, I definitely see the pining aspect of it, because, but I saw that as kind of more like a, a, a sense of, you know, her best friend saved her and, and the, the absolute love that came with it. But I don't know, I saw those two as a team. And, and so it was interesting to see how, you know, they came to their decision of, well, you can't, you know, when he, when he found out she was pregnant, he's like, well, you can't come. And she wanted to still. And he's like, well, you know, you got to think about the kid. You know, we can't have this kid on some world. What if we can't provide for it? And I mean, he made the tough decision as a father there. And, and, I mean, for me, I, I kind of liked how it played out, but I do get what you're saying with the, in the aspect of the characters being assassinated and how Candor's got more room. They're, when they're in the bar, they have a moment where they're, you know, they're forming up their team and they mention, you know, why, uh, 
why Junie and Joel Lee can't go because they're Jedi and they'd be obligated. They might be able to tell the council. Uh, and they talk about how Mission and Zalabar, they're now running an import-export business. But not once did they mention Karth Onasi. They mentioned everyone else but Karth. And granted, I understand why Karth wouldn't be there. He's all you know tied up with the Republic and stuff. But still, it would have been nice to have at least a reference to him. Uh, and, and this will also come up again in part two, because part two, you know, the KOTOR side of it, the KOTOR 2 side, most of the main characters in that are completely left out. Part one does a very good job of at least bringing in, you know, the elements of that first game, aside from right here in this case with Karth, and giving you a well what they're doing and what's been going on. Not once is Karth mentioned in this book. And that it's a small little nitpick on mine, but it's kind of like, you know, Drew added so many little details. It's like, why in that one moment didn't we get one line just saying that he's been promoted or, or you know, he's with the Republic? There's an obvious reason. I mean, Candace could have said any any of 12 different things that could have been simple and just one sentence and and suffice. But we didn't have that. But it was it was interesting nonetheless. Yeah, I think seeing what happened to Karth would have been interesting. I think I'm hoping that maybe it was because they were saving that, that maybe there's another storyline for him available at some other point, though I fear that it was like that. It was essentially just a, well, uh, we've mentioned these other ones, and the other ones only do get brief, brief mentions. Um, we don't necessarily need to mention Karth at this point, uh, especially since we wind up seeing more about Karth uh, briefly, as I recall, albeit very briefly, in uh, KOTOR 2, if I remember correctly. Um, but so from too. the standpoint of, of Bastilla, I get this idea of, well, you know, this was her best friend. Everything she knows has been sort of shattered. She is clinging to him and all. Um, that would have worked for me from the standpoint of, you know, it's a, it's a bond between them. Had it not been for the fact that they turned her into a teenage girl in the way that she looked at Mitra. If she was not so ungodly jealous every time we see the character, like, she's jealous of the fact that Mitra is so close to Revan, but she's not in, meh, 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 meh. oh my god, shut up and watch some Twilight Woman. Uh, <laughs> it, it did not work for me. They, again, they ripped the strength out of the character. And at least by the end of KOTOR, you had a sense that she remained a strong character, even though she had fallen and has been brought back by Revan, that she is effectively a partner. And that's what I expected here, a partner, not someone who is effectively subservient and who defines herself in relation to him. Um, I don't want to go, you know, on yeah, and on about say, it. We'll I think it's definitely I think get it's, into I, that more because I, I, when you talked about the reactions to Mitra, I have more to go there, but we'll save that for the next one. I, I like, though, that when they meet up with Candorous, we, we find immediately the Mandalore side of things. That the clans are all, you know, gathering. They're searching for the mask that, that Revan himself hid. Mandalore's mask. They, you know, they need it to unite the clans to rally the Mandalorian forces. So, you know, you get that feeling like that could be the threat. I mean, you know it's not. But it could be the threat if you've never read this book before. Yeah, it's interesting that it took a while for them ever to explain what it was that Revan went after. I mean, we find out, thanks to KOTOR 2, that after the events of KOTOR 1, Revan leaves, going after some great threat. And for a while there, it was conjecture that maybe the threat was the Yuzhan Vong, somehow. You know, thousands of years before they actually make their move uh, at that point. But instead... We were given, and one of the, uh, the guidebooks, I forget which guidebook it was, it may have been the Essential Chronology, or the new Essential Chronology, uh, that, no, it's actually the Sith Empire that he went to go investigate. And that kind of left me sitting there saying, really? 
you know, what is left of them as of the last time that we saw them, only for them to finally give us the reasons here. And they don't just give us reasons behind the the actions of Revan and Malik and what it was that he went to go check out. They manage in the process of this first part to also give us a backstory as to why the Mandalorian War happened the way that it did. Why the Mandalorians began waging war against the Republic as a whole the way that it did. Which, of course, gets a lot more detail as we get into things like uh, the Essential Guide to Warfare and the Essential Atlas and whatnot that gives us even more background to the situation with the Mandalorian clans, the Mandalorian culture in the lead-up to that. But for a long time, there was a sort of dangling question mark over this. And you're right, for the first part does a great job at giving us those answers. The second part feels like it's much more about moving this story along. This part definitely is the the heavy backstory, almost Darth Plagueis-esque, we are going to tie things together, you are going to feel like you got your answers type of storytelling. Yeah, and that's where I really, really enjoyed it. And then, you know, from the Sith side of things with Lord Scourge, he's running into henchmen of, of Lord Nerys, which, you know, he's being sent by the Emperor over back to uh, Dromad Kos. He's been away for a long time. So in a sense, he's kind of like a rogue Sith. I mean, not rogue as in, you know, he's off doing his own thing, but he's been away from the scheming aspect of what it is to be Sith. So for him, it's kind of like jumping back in and he's kind of like, you know, been away for so long. He's kind of green, you know? And so when he first shows up, he's there to investigate an assassination temp on uh, Lord Nerys, who is one of the Dark Council members. And when he gets there... Uh, he's met by one of her henchmen, Satchel, and him and, and Satchel don't get along. And then the head of the security, his name is Murtog, and I love that. I've been waiting for a Murtog from, you know, Lethal Weapon to show up. And so we have a gruff uh, security guy. But the 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 relationship between these Sith and, and, you know, the whole Sith aspect here is basically it's all Scourge's story. You know, and, and like Nathan said, you know, what's been going on with the Sith? As we get towards the end of this and Nira starts telling him more about what's been going on, and we get that background information on the Sith Emperor. We learn about how, you know, from uh, Nagar Sado at his defeat, how this guy ended up taking the remnants of the Sith species in their empire and basically falling back to their their lost long lost homeworld, which is Dromadkos. Uh, you know, this is, and that's another one. It's like, how many long lost homeworlds have these guys had? I mean, was it Cordoban? Was it Zios? Now it's this one. I mean, you know, it just bounces all over the place. But we get that backstory on the Sith. And I just, I'm absolutely loving how the more the Old Republic era explores, there's a lot more about the Sith than I ever, ever anticipated. Yeah, you know, you hear a lot of people saying, oh, we've been beat to down with the Sith. There's way too much Sith, way oversaturated with Sith. This is some deep and interesting stuff. And when it's all laid out, while confusing at times, it's very interesting. And it's just in the way that they are able to tie it all together, you know, um, both from a game yeah. standpoint and from the background standpoint. From a game standpoint here, um, just like, you know, we see this book and think, oh, it's Revan, oh, it's T3, oh, you know, here's all these characters that we know. If you were a player of the Old Republic at the time this came out, which I was not, I had not started really digging into the game or, or watching anything from the game at that point, for the game player, it's the, ah, it's Scourge! Because Scourge is one of your companions when you are in the Jedi Knight storyline. He winds oh. up joining you at that point. So it's sort of that, wow, you know, here's this character that we see later on. And, and the whole issue of the, the Emperor being mad and needing to be stopped is something that, that plays through both the Republic and some of the Imperial faction stories. Really? But here, we are given uh, what amounts to 
from from Vichitz or, or the Dark Emperor's standpoint, we get not just a little bit about where he came from. We sort of get this sense that he is one of these sociopathic people from the time he's a kid. We find out that he is essentially the bastard son. I've uh, been watching this a little bit too much Game of Thrones. Uh, you know nothing, Jon Snow. He is essentially the uh, the illegitimate child of Sith Lord uh, Dramath and his mother. And that when he's a kid, uh, and he, as he starts to show these Force abilities, his father, his supposed father, the one that's not really his father, his mom's husband, gets angry about this, realizes what's going on, and tries to exact some revenge upon them, essentially domestic violence, and he kills his father, and then winds up, because of the betrayal that his mother committed on this supposed father, um, he winds up essentially torturing her to death, and then winds up going up against uh, having been found uh, by his, his real biological father. Um, he learns more of the dark side, uh, his biological father dies, Lord Dramath II, his firstborn, takes his place, and there's a conflict between them, sort of the bastard child versus the firstborn, over who is truly essentially an heir to the power of uh, uh, on that particular planet, and he drives Dramath off, and that not only propels him to power as he starts gaining power in the background, eventually once, as you said, you know, the Nagasadao stuff is done with, the great hyperspace war is over, he will start the process of drawing in people uh, to do the ritual, make himself virtually immortal. He knows where Dromenkas is, but he stretches it out over the span of about a hundred years, so they feel like he's really leading them on a quest, so they are fiercely loyal to him. But even as he is doing that, Dramath II winds up being buried on Rekiad, which winds up being the impetus for a lot of what we wind up seeing with Revan and the KOTOR events, because it is that uh, that sarcophagus, essentially, that they wind up finding that draws them into the mix, throws them over to the Sith Empire, gets them to go investigating, and winds up with Revan and Malak coming back as evil. So they've given us a background that in a very... It's looking into the past, not the present, but is a very Star Wars-esque type of thing where you have different groups of characters in the same tale going on completely different directions, but in the end it all dovetails right back together and gives us something grander, um, very much like what I liked about some of the early Timothy Zahn novels before he, you know, lost his touch until Scoundrels. Well, and it again gets to the, the Sith Emperor and Emperor Palpatine, how Palpatine had three names. He was, you know, Chancellor Palpatine. And then he was Darth Sidious, and then he later becomes the Emperor. In this case, we've got our Dark Emperor, we've got his name as a child, and then when he uh, meets Marcos Ragnus of that time, I thought that was cool that you know he was alive at that point even, uh, after he overthrew and took over the world and renamed it Namath, or Nathema, uh, you know, he gets the, the, the Darth Lord uh, Vitat, or I, I know I'm going to say that wrong, uh, VT it, or whatever you had said, however you had said it before. I kept calling him Vitat. But uh, he had that Sith Lord name. And so Revan knew of another Sith Lord. So it was like there was like this one Lord that was never being named. And then you had this other Lord with the name. And you found out they're all the same guy who all was the Sith Emperor. And these two different planets were the same one. And it's like, oh, whoa, whoa. And it was the planet where the ritual happened. As Nathan said, I loved how when all the pieces started to click into place, it was, you know, the big reveals. You're just like, whoa, oh my gosh, this guy's crazy. And, you know, and, and the fact that all the Sith are like, this guy's crazy. I mean, all they had to do is go to Namath and they were just like, or Nathema, and they're just immediately like, like we've got to stop this guy. Because, you know, the ritual doesn't just take 
and suck the planet into an empty husk and leave not even everyone behind. It takes the force too. The whole place is a void in the force. Uh, it, it would almost, in a sense, be like if the entire planet was a Yasmiri. I mean, it was just all of a sudden, bloop, there's nothing there. And everybody going there. I mean, I liked how, you know, in part two, uh, when uh, Mitra's there, she felt like she was disappearing even. Like it was sucking her up still. I mean, it was just one of those. It was just such a, such a, a, a travesty to the force itself that everybody had a visceral reaction to it and the emperor for doing it the one thing that i do think though as cool as the background is that we get for vichit or for the dark emperor whatever in this story as cool as it is as powerful as he is this idea of him being essentially a long-lived you know when they said that it's an emperor that's like a thousand years old we were like yeah right sure what's the deal turns out yes he is because of this ritual the more power we give to a character like this, there is an argument that can be made to say that we are undermining Palpatine slash Sidious as this grand, super powerful Sith Lord. I mean, in, in, in comparing Palpatine to this guy, Palpatine is nothing. He manages to take power. Uh, you could say maybe he is more powerful in the sense that he is not a thousand years old. He does not have all this power and still manages to rule the galaxy. But... This Sith Emperor, from a, an ability standpoint, a, a ritualistic standpoint, from what he can do, it certainly seems beyond anything Palpatine did. The children of the Emperor, you know, the children out there who uh, have the, uh, the ability to essentially hear the Emperor's will and act. The well, fact didn't it that seem he, like that was his, like he had a special ability to dominate people's minds? I mean, that seemed to be something that they... They gave him naturally from the start that he was able to dominate and take them over. And, you know, yeah. within time, he'd taken over the whole planet. Well, yeah, but, but it's not even just that. He's got the ability not just to dominate, but to send commands. Like, they essentially hear his telepathic commands and act. The children that we, of course, meet in uh, Blood of the Empire, the web comics that eventually wound up being released in physical form and all. But then you also have, for instance, the voice, the Emperor's voice. He's able to, like, send his consciousness into another body and live in that form. I mean, the whole idea in the early uh, Tor stuff, both in the game and in the, the other materials out there, when they refer to the idea that the Emperor is asleep, or the Emperor has been silent and such, it's because he is in the body of a Voss mystic, he's on Voss, winds up in the Dark Heart, winds up with that that weird, like, ancient Force entity thing, Sel Makor, that is trying to take him over and won't let him leave, won't let him contact telepathically any of his emperor's hands to let his real will be out there. He's not asleep. You know, he's been muted, and you eventually have to wind up saving him so his body can go, or his spirit can go into his real body so that that real body can be there when the Jedi Knight goes up against him and defeats him, setting up the events of what happened with Malgus and what happens oh. in Annihilation. So, I mean, this is a guy, he has so many powers. He's like this ultimate superpower dark side overlord type character and that's awesome for this era, but it certainly means that Vader and Palpatine and so many of these other Sith that we see, from the standpoint of the, the threat that they pose to the galaxy, they're nothing compared to this guy. And I can see where that would cause a lot of consternation. I mean, you could certainly argue that, well, this guy's the head of a Sith Empire. Later on, it's essentially building a new Sith Empire. It makes sense. This is a separate... Uh, a lineage, essentially, of Sith. This is the ones that go back to the Sith Empire as opposed to the ones that go back to the new Sith and all. There are a lot of ways you could say that it makes sense that this could be powerful here and they could be less powerful later. 
But from the standpoint of simply, you know, a side-by-side -side comparison, it certainly does seem as though every time they up the ante on one of these new Sith, it just lowers the expectations when it comes to the power levels of people like Palpatine and Vader. I see that argument. I, I try to look at it as these Sith when they tell these stories and it does that. To me, it's more that it fuels the myth of the word, uh, you know, because Palpatine and them, they're not the same Sith as these Sith. This guy is, I mean, he started out as a red-skinned Sith, uh, you know, and, and the fact that we had him get the Lord title by Marcos Ragnus, and then later he's still alive with Nagasado and all the other stuff and, and, and all that. Yeah, Marco Ragnus. I'm, I'm saying it wrong. I'm terrible like that. But, uh, but the fact that we see, you know, it, it seemed like, by the time he even did the ritual, he was already 100, if not 200 years old, which got back to that. How old are the Sith themselves, which, which made me stop and think it's like, OK, you know, if the Sith were already a species that say like an old Sith lived to say 500 or, you know, uh, that, that's quite a bit of stuff you could do in your lifetime if you managed to out scheme the rest. I mean, keep in mind that the scheming side of their their history and their culture would definitely keep them whittling themselves down. Not many of them would get to the age. But what he was doing on his planet, he was basically left untouched while Mark Aragnus was doing his stuff. And then while Naga Sado and Ludo Kresh were doing their things, he was off to the side. He'd stayed off to the side while all that stuff was going down. And it wasn't until the, the Jedi were coming after the Sith, and then he played that up even worse, that he got all the lords that were around to flock to him. He said, I got, I've got the answer. Come to me. And he had been fueling the panic and feeding off of that. The fear that the whole empire was doing, you know, it brings him in. And then he did that ritual to become immortal. But he had already been alive for a long time. I, I mean, you're the timeline there. I don't know the exact years there, but I, I was under the impression that it was at least 100, maybe 150 years. He was, a, he was 113 by my reckoning by the time that he does the ritual at the end of a, the, the great hyperspace war. So, yeah, he was fairly long lived at the time. So now that box you were saying that he gets trapped in, is that the same kind of mind trap that the Rakuten's made? Box. That, uh, box. It, the, the, well, you were saying he was trapped, that his will was trapped. Uh, oh, no, the, it, he, he, he sends his spirit, essentially, into this Voss mystic. Um, and in trying to discover this ancient power or whatever, he winds up being trapped by the ancient power. It's not that he's, you know, trapped in a box or anything like that. It's that, he is in this body, and the ancient power Selma Core has the ability to essentially control individuals, and it's essentially fighting him for control of that body, and in doing so is also deadening his ability to reach out telepathically. So he is, I mean, he's still around, he's still able to, you know, move around and do stuff, he just, he's stuck in the so-called dark heart, and until something destroys that body, then his spirit cannot escape to wind up going into one of his other bodies out there, whether his natural body or whatever. You see, and that was the confusing part because when, when you had the earlier comics and stuff, you know, the threat that, uh, Oh, what was his name? Uh, he becomes, uh, the guy who becomes Thanaton. Yeah. Thanaton, Darth Thanaton. Uh, when we, when he sees the threat, it, that was exactly what I had seen was that the emperor could jump into all these bodies and all, all his little minions, all these people are being raised. They, they could all be potential emperors. And it's like, you know, uh, in a sense, it's like Abelith, you know, how are you going to kill something that can jump into any body? And that, you know, was, was very curious to me. It was like, okay, well, did, did he need to have his, his core body or did he, could he leave his body entirely? Or, you know, was he doing something like Lamaya did in Fate of the Jedi where, 
you know, she was jumping around uh, or for Legacy of the Force where she was jumping, you know, leaving her body, but her body was still the tether. Like if you killed the body, would you kill her? Or if you killed the body, would she be trapped? I mean, what's going on with the Emperor here in that regard? I mean, that was a confusing side of things. And then, you know, you see that he was old, you know, like, the, like you said, 113 or so before he became immortal. And then how's the immortality work? But then, you know, I thought about it. The immortality is the key to being able to master a lot of these other tricks. And, you know, I've always said the force with the force, anything is possible if you come at it from the right point of view. And so, you know, once you've got immortality, you know, anything at that point is available to you. It's just a matter of time. So, you know, playing that out, you know, in one to the next to the next him being 113. OK, well, that's the Sith. They, they can live for a long time. Then he becomes immortal. OK, then he comes down with that trick. OK, now he's jumping body to body. It, it at least falls in. Like you said, they do a good job of tying it all together. Um, I want to say that that's because of Drew. You know, Drew worked so hard with KOTOR 1. You know, he was one of the main lead developers of the game. I, I think that really plays through here. I think for those that did not like the book, and we will definitely hit that up more in the second half, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I, Drew had very little, if anything, to do with KOTOR 2, and thus he didn't have as much to draw on when he's in that part when it came to Mitra's character. Yeah, because Bioware was where he was, and Bioware is the one behind KOTOR 1 and who is behind the Old Republic, but it was Obsidian Entertainment that was behind KOTOR 2, and that's people like uh, Chris Avalone as the lead designer and people like that who were who were over it. So he didn't have quite as much first-hand uh, original development knowledge with that, but, you know, I mean, how much does that actually matter? I mean, we've got the Holocron out there and such. I mean, he seems like he's been great at pulling together a lot of details in his other books. Why not pull together more details for the second half of this one? Unless it's just, you know, let's give the details in the background and do all of our exploring in the first half, make the second half a much more straightforward, essentially, this is our mission type story. Well, I think it just comes down to, you know, I, I, I designed the first half, so it's easy to draw on it. And the second half, it's not quite mine. So I'm going to dial it back a little for fear of stepping on something. Because I, I don't know. I mean, aside from the Bane books, you know, I, I've always thought he's done a real good job of of not stepping on anything continuity wise. I mean, I know there has been flack for some of the Bane stuff, but, you know, I, I've always enjoyed what he's done. Uh, but getting back into what we got going on, uh, Darth Nerys sends Scourge to go after Darth Zendrix. I, and I'm probably saying his name wrong anyway, but he's another member of the Dark Council. And interestingly, he's a human member of the Council, which I thought was was cool, the way that they played up the interspecies aspect of, you know, these humans are kind of coming in and tainting our Sithly blood pool and all that. And, and so he gets sent off to go after him and stop him from, you know, doing his own thing against the Emperor. And yet, when we get to that scene and when Zendrix is fighting Scourge and everything and, and the way it plays out and he does his little his force bomb and he's trying to, you know, turn Scourge against everybody else. And he's like, you know, she sent you here to die and he's, he's doing the Sith scheming, plotting, you know, trying to turn Scourge's own thoughts against him. I, I love the way that that played out. And then meanwhile, Scourge himself realizes that the old man didn't have enough time to gather enough power to him when he made the attack. Because Scourge kind of, you know, forced the hand by charging in. And so he realized that the man's stalling, trying to build up more power. He really has nothing else. It just ends him. I, I just, I love the way that these scenes with him played out. I mean, I didn't have the opportunity, nor did I even know that he was a character that was so important in the MMO. Uh, I'm very curious now to go back and check out some more of those videos because of that. Because I, I really, this was my first introduction to the character. 
And every way he interacted in the situations, I enjoyed it. Um, I really enjoyed the, the Bane novels because I liked getting into the Sith point of view. Uh, you know, I, I complained about Jason falling into it, but at, at the end of the book, when Jason falls in Invincible, I felt that he did a lot of decisions that I felt like a Sith would do. And I really get into that Sith point of view. And so seeing him going about it and the plotting behind it, and then when he ends up going back and how Nearest turns it on him, and she's like, no one's going to implement me. They're going to implicate you because you're the one that did it. And I just, oh man, it's classic setup after setup after setup with scheme within scheme and the way it all plays out. You know, you got this back and forth between Revan's story and Scourge's story. And I'm just, I really enjoyed that. I, I, no shame here in my game. I, I like this book. Yeah, the stuff with the Sith essentially scheming against each other and the idea of the scheme to send Revan to do, and, and to send the Mandalorians to do what they did. The idea of sort of testing the waters to see if the Republic is is ready for an invasion. You know, we're going to promise the Mandalorians that, uh, sure, you know, uh, you will rule alongside us just as long as you go and, uh, and help test the Republic to see uh, if they're weak enough yet. And sort of the same idea of we're going to brainwash Revan and Malak and send them to test the waters for a possible invasion, uh, essentially ahead of schedule and all that. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense from the standpoint of, you know, the Sith scheming and whatnot. It actually kind of feels uh, ironic then when you get to the Old Republic uh, MMO time frame that once again the Mandalorians have been duped or manipulated by this new Mandalore that was backed by the Empire um, that was designed as a way to kind of bring the Mandalorians into the fight on the Empire side yet again uh, in that case. And of course what we see with, with Nerys and uh, her essentially selling out her fellow Sith. We had that Sith named uh, Zedrix that she winds up selling out, who is also among those who think that the Emperor is nuts and that uh, he needs to be taken down and all. But uh, we see her sort of playing against him, being willing to sell him out in order to get what she wants. And that's very much like what we see in especially the Sith Warrior and Sith Inquisitor stuff in the game, where you've got, in one case, you have a character who is going up against Darth Barriss, being essentially manipulated by Barriss, and then going up against Barriss. Of course, Barriss also appearing in the Treaty of Coruscant comics, or the uh, Threat of Peace comics, that is. Um, and you've got uh, Thanaton, of course, from Blood of the Empire, winds up back in it in the Sith Inquisitor storyline, where you've essentially got the, the interplay between Darth Zash and Thanaton, and uh, then eventually your character, uh, the the and the descendant of Lord Kallig, who essentially becomes the next Lord Kallig, winding up coming in there to face off against uh, against Thanaton. So we, it definitely fits the theme of the game, uh, many of the themes of the Old Republic, and it certainly fits in very well with uh, the gaps that were left in the previous KOTOR games, at least this part of it so far. What I really like is the fact that we do get a chance to see Candorus make his change between KOTOR 1 and KOTOR 2. Because, of course, at the end of KOTOR 1, he's just one of your allies. At the end, of, at the beginning of KOTOR 2, you wind up running into Mandalore and realize this Mandalore is, you know, Candorus Ordo. He's back again. So how did he go from being who he was to being the leader of the Mandalorians? And we got sort of some quick background on that in some of the reference materials, but never got a chance to see it. Now we see the mission to Rekiad. Now we see them go following Revan's visions, uh, finding the place where Revan and Malak had found, uh, or where, where he had hidden Mandalore's helmet, where they'd also found uh, Dra Lord Dramath 
the second's tomb and found the information about Nathema, about Dromenkas and whatnot, uh, and how that plays into the search where it's essentially, mm-hmm. you know, Ordo and his wife, it turns out, uh, Vila, yeah. I believe was her name. Yep, and Vila. so they finally, um, you know, in, in finding what they want, which, of course, is the information on where Revan wants to go, they also, of course, find where he hid the mask. And in finding the mask, or slash helmet, that's what gives Candorus the chance to actually rise as the leader. So they don't just give us Revan's story. You know, we get Revan's story and Mitra's story and mm-hmm. Scourge's story, and it sort of feels like those are the primary tales within here. And a lot of times it's forgotten that we also get a lot of character movement, at least from point A to point B, for Candorus here. Uh, but since he's not in the second part, a lot of times I guess he gets sort of left out of the discussion here. But he gets a lot of good development. It makes sense to see him the way we see him in the Sith Lords now. Well, and I loved how when he showed up and he, he goes back to, you know, Clan Ordo and he introduces Revan as Avner. And Revan's like, really? That's just my initials all screwed up. you know." <laughs> and then later, you know, when, when they get attacked by uh, Clan Jindiri and they're out there and, and he, their bas- the war basculists have got uh, Clan Ordo's basculists pinned down. And Revan pulls his lightsaber out and Ordo's just kind of like nods to him, you know. And after he makes quick work of it and, and it quickly turns the tide in Clan Ordo's favor, you know, he hides it again. And, you know, he's like, do you think she noticed? And then later, you know, she walks up and like the first thing she says, is, go help the wounded that you Jedi are good at that. Right. And then later, you know, when they find the mask and she turns on Revan and, and he's like, you know, Abner helped us. And she's like, you brought Revan the butcher. here." I mean, she's known the whole time who he was and and the whole back and forth there. I, I Yeah. Candorous's story was a lot of fun. And when we get the moment, you know, you mentioned it a second ago where he's telling and he is Revan. Revan is telling Candorous how Mandalore and the Sith all tie in. And, and that's the aspect of how a, a man in, uh, the, with skin the color of blood came to Mandalore, and he was the emissary, who we find out, of uh, the Emperor. But at this time, it was just uh, the Lord Vitatat, or, or whatever you say his name, Vitati or whatever. Vichit. Uh, and he's uh, Vichit, which is the Emperor, is looking for the remains of his stepbrother. Now, I'm curious, though, because... Mandalore gets hired at this point to find those remains, which he does on Caradad. He gets those remains, and and the Sith takes them back to the Emperor. And in exchange for that, that's when he gives him the vision. And I loved how how uh, Candorus is like, well, you know, Mandalore was smarter than that. He wouldn't have just bought into some well wishing and that stuff like that. And Revan's like, it wasn't just that. They used the dark side on him. They basically corrupted his mind and, and force persuaded him. And it wasn't until Revan defeated Mandalore and he was at it, the Mandal or Mandalore was at Revan's feet that he looked up and the spell broke off and he realized that they had been duped. And that was what sent Revan looking for the Sith because, like Nathan had said when this all started, at this point, the galaxy thinks the Sith are extinct. You know, getting back to, to what Nathan said about the Emperor and this Emperor, at this time frame with the Emperor's unlimited power, he's ruling in the shadows. This isn't the MMO yet. At the MMO, he comes out in the open and, and he's ruling out in the open. But at this point, everything he's doing is in the shadows. Unlike Palpatine, who is doing it all out in the open. And he's been out in the open as Chancellor Palpatine. And history knows him as this great, wonderful guy. And it's not until Luke comes back and rewrites history saying, no, he was the Sith Emperor. He was really a bad dude. That we realize what he was really doing. So there's that aspect of this Emperor was doing a lot of stuff in the shadows for so long. And a lot of people didn't know what he was doing. Or granted, the Sith Empire themselves, they knew what he was doing. But I like that that back and forth they're going on and how we learned, you know, that 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 duping of the Mandalorians was what, you know, led Revan and Malak to go looking for the Sith to stop the Sith. And then they get there. 
in the tomb next to the mask, we also discover that there was a datacron. Uh, you know, it's very much like a holocron, only you don't need the force to use it. This is basically the Lehman's version of using it. And we find out that this was the second, uh, Darmus the Second's uh, little thing. It talks about his history, how he was exiled and all this. And, and that's where we find all that out. But it's got the coordinates for uh, Nathema. And this is how Revan and Malik ended up finding the planet. And this is, you know, they go one step. And and I liked how Candorus even said, you know, well, what's to stop you from going to this? You know, is this the, your uh, your thunder and lightning planet? And Revan's like, no, it's it's obviously it's the next one after that. And he's like, well, what's to stop you from going there and and having the same thing happen all over again? And you coming back and defeating everyone? He's like, well, this time I'm 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 more ready to you know come up against him. And he was like, you know, one side of me's like, um, dude, you were totally taken by surprise last time, and you were a pretty powerful guy. I mean, granted, you're a lot more powerful now, Revan, but, you know, I mean, there's that aspect of this is not going to end well, you know, and you, you know something bad's going to happen to Revan from the flashbacks. At least I did, you know, and I'm just like, where are we going with this, Revan? Come on, you know, and he leaves Candorus behind. Candorus is ready to go, and he flat out tells him, you know, the same thing that, that, that Vila, his wife, has been telling him, which I love the way that they slipped that in. You didn't realize it was his wife until after the fact. You know, they, they have their little uh, mandate greetings of, so you're still alive kind of thing. And, you know, he's like, that's my wife. And then she's leading the clan because he took off. And she's like, don't you get it? You should be Mandalore. And then that's what Revan says, too. Because when all of the betrayal goes down and, and Vila turns on Revan, it's Candorous who has to take her down and he shoots her in the head. And, you know, there's, there's a moment that right after that happens, the only, there's only two were or two phrases repeated by both characters, Revan and, and Candorous there. And I found it was very profound because it was like a lot of, there's almost three paragraphs worth of stuff after the shot was taken before those words were said. And the first thing Revan says is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then Candorous hollow and flat says me too. Me too. And yeah, it was a very powerful scene. You know, you, going back to us talking about Candorous' story, I mean, it, there was so much going on there. And when we get to that moment, it's just like, oh my gosh, you know. And then they they, they camp up there for another night and they, they come up with a story as to why, you know, the Regardian droids up there. So that way they could still maintain their honor for not betraying, you know, Revan and, and Candorous. But Revan then tells Candorous, you know, you have to stay. You have to become Mandalore. Vila was right. You were the one that should be leading these people. And, and you know, absolutely, Nathan, I think because of the fact that so much stuff happens in the second half of the se story, the second part, that people forget about what happened in the first part. Because, see, for me, the first part's what sold the book. I mean, I, I, I love this book. You know, it's a great book for me. And it's that first part. All the lore, that, 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 it, it, you know, you mentioned it being like Darth Plagueis. That was what I loved so much about Darth Plagueis. And so in that regards, that first part was a, a kid in a candy store moment for me. You know, like getting like a thousand dollar gift card and, and sent into Sam Sweet's uh, museum, you know, and everything's a dollar. <laughs> yeah, definitely the first half of this book makes the, the rest of it work. You know, it, it, without this part, if it had been separated out as two books, I'm not sure how well received the second part by itself would have been um you know i like the idea of of the the mind bending we find of course that revan and malik were essentially dominated very much the way that uh, mandalore the ultimate was by the sith emperor only they were strong enough in the force that it didn't uh, either it didn't fully take or it fully took but they were able to fight it to a degree so they wind up thinking that their attack is actually their idea them becoming sith lords is their idea it's not them being dubbed and sent out on behalf of the empire 
they are doing it autonomously, which explains why they wouldn't have sent word of their triumph, or lack thereof, to the Sith Emperor. Which I thought was kind of a cool element here to give a reason for why they did what they did, and at least part of it was not by choice. It makes Revan seem like like a, a kind of a combination of someone who made a bad choice, but also was at least somewhat a victim himself. Which yeah, makes him a little bit more of a complex it. He character. He was fighting the alcohol, right? Yeah, yeah, fight it, Revan! From the naming standpoint, though, I think it's funny that they they remark about how lame Avner was, or Anver, or whatever it was, the 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 switching around of Revan for his alias. And what does Bastilla name their son? Vanner. Another one. It's just Revan backwards. It just goes to further emphasize the point of how lame they made Bastilla in the book. Vanner Shan. That's great and all, but still, really? That's what you're going to go with as a name? You're just going to reverse the name, even when the book itself calls out doing that type of thing as being kind of lame? Um, although I guess... You know, this this gives us at least one answer as to uh, Revan. Apparently, Revan is his only name. Because otherwise, it would be Bastilla something other than Shan, or Bastilla Shan Revan, and it's not. And it's Banner True. Shan. So apparently, Revan was just a, it was the man with one name. He's kind of like Madonna in that sense. Well, and wasn't he the Revan Christ at one point, or the Revan Christ? I, the Revanchist, uh, someone who uh, is, is essentially a, uh, uh, taking back and rebuilding it's a, a historical term yeah that that confused the the nine hells out of me when they brought that in in the kotor comic book i'm like wait what and everybody's like see revan's in the name it's revan i'm like okay that, but but what what does that have to do with what like why why adopt a name like i, I that's like okay i'm gonna become a new emperor and i'm gonna call myself marco polo what <laughs> yeah technically a revanchist uh is someone who is trying to get revenge um and it's sometimes used uh within the context of someone say given ethnic group that has lost previous territory trying to get it back i mean you could make the argument perhaps for instance that the slavs of austria hungary or even to a degree that the black hand serbian terrorists who were essentially taking up their cause that winds up killing you know, Archduke Ferdinand and sending us into World War One was essentially a revanchist kind of movement. Uh, you hear the same term used, for instance, during the French Revolution and such. But that was a little bit odd because you get this sense of he calls himself Revan now, okay, and uh, it, he could take that title from revanchist certainly because that's used in the Kotor comics. That works. But then, would he have still been called Revan for some reason prior to that? Was there an original name we just don't know? And is it just the fact that he's known as Revan now that causes him to be referred to by those who knew him prior to being the revanchist call him Revan now in this story? Like They don't ever indicate that there is an, another name he was known by to begin with, which is the so his name was Revan and they called him the Revanchist because it sounded similar to his name and they figured, hey, it fits his cause as well? Or what? Because otherwise, I mean, yeah. for some reason, it just doesn't seem like it fits. It's kind of like them trying to give the background of saying that, well, Revan and Malik, they're the ones who came up with Darth. Where then they say, no, it's actually the Rakatans. It's it's Darta, you know, con uh, conquering death, or it's Daratha, which is the old uh, Rakatan emperor. But no, how would they have known it? You know, prior to finding the Star Forge and stuff, well, see, you know, you got the Sith Empire, they're already using it. Now it's all the way back to Darth Vendetu and the original uh, exiles who wind up finding the Sith in the first place. It, they try so many ways of trying to answer the same thing and give us some cool backstory behind a term 
that it winds up getting mixed up because of so many people trying to tell the same backstory mm-hmm. or other people ignoring it that it winds up a mess. It's very the, the way that terms like Revan and Darth get used in Star Wars is very much like what's happening with the post or what has happened with the immediate post uh, A New Hope stuff and the Clone Wars itself. Except instead of it being full stories interweaving and crashing with each other, it's terminology and backstories for the terminology interweaving and crashing with each other. Too many cooks in the kitchen <laughs> not bothering to figure out what others do. That's one thing about that phrase. Too many cooks in the kitchen. No, no, no. You can have tons of cooks in the kitchen, as long as the kitchen is big enough, and they all know what they're doing, and they know what each other (laughs) is doing. But too many cooks in the kitchen, when they are banging into each other and tripping over each other, that's a bad thing. And that's what things like the Revan term have turned out to be. They are, uh, oh, they're cooking. And for a while, they're they're cooking with gas. And then somebody trips over them, and all of a sudden, the souffle explodes, you know? Oh, no, they're cooking with kerosene. (laughs) You know, it's one of those things where you're just like, really? Did you take the Lucasism of unlearn what you have learned? too far okay well we got the sith term here darth and uh let's unlearn what we learned and uh this is what it means well let's unlearn that and let's uh make it this no let's unlearn that and make it this let's make it this let's unlearn that i mean they just keep going and going and going with it and next thing you know it's like it's like boba fett's backstory he's <laughs> just like i don't know one thing i like though about how part one plays out i i, I and that's why we did this as two episodes it does play out like two books i almost think they should say book one and book two in that regard i mean you know you got a, almost 200 pages. They could be small books in that way, but it all leads up to the last two chapters. You know, both these stories, and I say stories of of Revan and Scourge, the the dark and the light. They're both leading up towards the same thing, where they all get to Nathma, and you know, we see uh, Scourge's point of view, and then we see Revan. But you know, Nathan had, had touched on it earlier. This is where we finally find out the Emperor's name that he was uh, uh, Tenebra. Uh, and there's a moment where Nerys is explaining to Scourge everything, and and she goes, you know, the Emperor's name was Tenebra. They say he was born with eyes as black as the void of empty space and that he never cried, even as an infant. No animal would come near him, and when he began to talk, his voice carried a weight and power that should not come from a child. At, and really quick, they also mention after the, uh, the ritual that his voice echoed, kind of like what we hear Palpatine's voice sometimes do and what we hear uh, Mother Talzin's voice do. And they said that that was because of the ritual with all the souls that he might have captured. And I love that they touched on that as well. But going back to how she says it, she goes, at the age of six, he began to manifest signs of the force, marking him as one of the ruling elite. But his parents were simple farmers and the force was not strong in them. Suspicious about the boy's power, his father confronted his mother, who admitted to having an affair with the Sith Lord who ruled over them. The father's rage, the father flew into a rage attacking the boy's mother. Tenebra stopped him, feeding on his father's anger and hate to call upon the dark side. He snapped his father's neck with a mere thought, killing him instantly. His mother died more slowly. Tenebra made her suffer for months as punishment for betraying the family, torturing her for the force, torturing her with the force as he honed his power. I love this. You know, it kind of like it gives you a, a Tenebris, uh, you know, not Tenebris, but a, a Darth Plagueis as he's messing around uh, and, and refining his midichlorines, you know, kind of thing going on here. But it's his use of the dark side. Now orphaned by his own hand, he made the others in his village bow to him. Those who refused, he tortured and killed through the force. Over the next few years, his reputation and influence spread to nearby villages, and he amassed legions of both fanatical and terrified followers. He killed thousands during his rise of power. Many died just to feed his insatiable appetite for suffering 
tortured for days in public executions so he could savor their agonizing ends. And I just, I love how, you know, in chapter 15 here, they really just explore how dark this guy was as a kid. I mean, just how like, you know, you know, they say for like, well, think, you know, about, uh, 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 Kai and how she didn't really have a choice. You know, I mean, he, he, this guy was also raised in the Sith culture, but he didn't have a choice because he was just born this way. I mean, you know, he didn't have a choice because nature selected him to be this bad. And that gets back to that aspect of, you know, what you were saying about how, you know, Palpatine and him, you know, which one is, 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 you know, more bad, bad. It's like, in a lot of ways, this guy was selected for that. I, I don't know his fate. So there's a part of me that goes, you know, this body to body thing. What if Palpatine is this guy? What if this guy has been jumping from Sith Lord to Sith Lord, trying to work his way up the lines until he gets to be Bane and then work up the rule of two? And I, I mean, you know, there's that side of me uh, that, that goes, well, maybe this changes what we know about what Carpician meant originally with Bane not jumping in or maybe Bane didn't jump in but the Emperor jumped in because the Emperor was there the whole time and I you know and that gets me thinking of a Marvel side of things with what's going on with Parker and, and the Superior Spider-Man right now how Parker is trapped inside his own body but Doc Ock is actually running his body because Doc Ock has taken over his body I mean I don't know the Emperor's fate so there's so many things about him that I'm like whoa what's going on and this is the only book you're gonna get that really gives you anything about the Emperor and for that God bless you, Drew. Definitely a novel that's great for the backstory. The story of Scourge, the story of Revan, and what they go through, it certainly isn't epic by any means in the first part of this book. Uh, it's a much more personal story. It's a lot more like the type of story you would see in certain aspects with the Old Republic MMO or uh, something like Ruins of Dantooine. You know, here's your mission. You go on your mission, you go to the one place you do it, you go to the next place to do the next part, you go to the next place to do the next part, you learn, you learn, you learn, you finally do something of value. Um, but from the standpoint of giving us a lot of cool background, the first part is an excellent piece of the story. It almost feels like this is the uh, informational half of the book, the action-based part of the book is the next half, which of course we'll be handling uh, on the next episode of the show here. That's right. Uh, and we're just going to wrap up here. And before we get done, there are a couple things here uh, at the end. You know, one thing, and we will definitely hit this more when we get to the other half and we've clued you into what we're talking about. But, you know, Nathan mentioned uh, Scourge becoming the Wraith. Uh, I believe I'm saying it right. I'm not at the end of the book. But he goes through his wrath. own process. It is Wrath. Okay, okay, Wrath, not Wraith. He becomes the Emperor's Wrath, and he goes through a different process, or at least I'm under the impression it's a different process. When he goes through it, there's tubes and a bunch of other stuff. The Emperor's there with him. But when the Emperor has it done, and, and as Lord Nearest is talking to Scourge, she goes, but the ritual was not confined to the doomed Sith Lords. They were but the eye of the storm, the center of a vortex that spread across the entire planet. Every woman and child on Nathema died that day. Every beast, bird, and fish, all the insects and plants, every living being touched by the Force was consumed. When the ritual ended, Nathema was no longer a world. It was a husk, sucked dried. Lord Vitic Lord Vitatate, oh, I am never going to say his name right, sacrificed, the Emperor sacrificed millions, stealing their life force to make himself immortal. Their deaths also made him stronger than any Sith Lord who had come before. He had ceased to be known as Lord Vitat, and on that day the Emperor was truly born. That gives me a definite impression that there were differences to the devices that 
or the rituals that launched them into their immortality. And yet at the end of the second part, the emperor does make it sound like the cost of that immortality is the same for both of them. So I'm curious there as to the differences in the ritual or more so if we had the second part. And as we talk about it, then did something like what happened to Nathema happen to where scourge was. So that is definitely something we will get into, you know, as we get there. But as Nathan says, that does about wrap up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you for hanging around with us and sharing the fandom. Lastly, though, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you can get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're about. You can explore more than 100,000 titles. You can jump right into the galaxy far, far away, our favorite of all genres, or explore any other new one without risk. Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. In this digital age, if you're making the switch from the screen to the page, Audible just might be right for you. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes, which we would love for you to drop us an iTunes review. And you can find us on Facebook at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. We're almost to 1,000 likes, boys and girls. You have helped us there. Beyonders, you guys have made this happen. We haven't even gone for a year and a half, and we're almost at 1K. That just staggers my mind as something I have never thought I would see as a podcaster. I'm just like, wow, really? Wow, you guys are, are awesome. And it makes the ponders and the chatting with you guys so much more entertaining and interactive and informative because I, I'm able to see more of your guys' point of views. Nathan's able to. We're able to chime in there more. And same with Twitter. You know, I'm actually, I've got seismic work and Nathan's able to hop on there. You know, so tweet away. We're, we're trying to fire back there as much as possible. But definitely our home base is the Facebook page. Uh, it is the best way to interact with us. You can post comments about the show or ask us direct questions. We do love interacting with you fellow fans. If you have any Star Wars and or EU questions and you want to comment about past episodes, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Also, of course, while you are on Facebook, don't forget to check out the Star Wars timeline goal. You can find that, of course, uh, by just dropping into the search bar. It is linked, of course, uh, over to our Star Wars Beyond the Films page. We're at about 800 or so for that right now. For a while, it was a race. We get that back into being a race again, uh, if at all possible. And if you are looking for, of course, oddball sci-fi stuff, comic stuff, uh, movies, whatever it might be, don't forget we have our Amazon store, my fiancé and I. It is Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. Just put some new stuff in there, including some stuff for the current Tomb Raider game and some Dead Space uh, EU materials out there for those following that particular franchise. So check it out. Uh, a lot of cool stuff in there, and it seems like uh, some people have been because uh, a lot of new sales have popped up recently. So thank you all for that. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark Ann Whistler. And Nate Nobody. It's not that funny, Whistler. Come on. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. That will ever really get an end to the Old Republic story because it's an MMO and they could just kill the servers one day and goodbye story and what the hell happened? Uh. Or that we'll ever find out what happened to the Sith Emperor. 
or if I could convince everybody that hated the book to like it. Defender of the EU, Mark Herleman, and with me like the Jedi who inevitably fuck, who inevitably flock. Like <laughs> like the Jedi who inevitably fuck. Who? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did I say it? What the hell come out of my mouth? That's dirty. Yeah. Okay, I can, I can say this. I wrote it. I can say this.